0: money. You can't really get through life without it. Some people use it to define success. Some people use it as the key to reach their goals. And some people use it to attain freedom. Whatever your motivation, you need to know how to earn it, how to use it, and how to grow it. For years, women have been telling their beauty stories, their success stories, their health stories. Now, we want to talk to women about their money stories. Welcome to Tilly Money.
1: Kate Morris is the powerhouse behind online cosmetic and beauty retailer Adore Beauty. Starting the business in 1999 from her garage, 20 or so years later, the company is achieving unfathomable success as Australian and New Zealanders one-stop online beauty shop and now serves more than a million transactions per year.
2: If you want to be successful in business, you have to be kind of willing to put everything on the line.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by our principal partner, Mortgage Choice. 2020 has been a challenging year, so Mortgage Choice and its national network of mortgage brokers are on a mission to help Australians restart their 2020. Whether you're looking to buy your first home
1: or investment property or want to refinance an existing home loan to get a better deal, let a Mortgage Choice broker answer all your questions, show you what's available and do the legwork to help you restart 2020. Visit mortgagechoice.com.au or call 137762 to speak to your local broker.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. It's a total pleasure. Maureen here, Kate. Now, I know we're going to absolutely adore you by the end of this interview, but um, (laughs) I know we're going to get to know you pretty well and lots of things that... um, that maybe some people know already can be reinforced and then lots of little bits and pieces of information and tips to help our audience of women under Tilly Money. But we'd love to know as much about you as you want to reveal. So sure. let's start at the beginning and tell us about you and your life in those pre adored days, Kate. Oh,
2: well, I, I grew up in Tasmania, so... Oh. Um, I was, I was born there. I um, lived in Launceston for the first 18 years of my life. Not oh, um, yeah. not not a not one of those sort of usual stories of a very entrepreneurial family. We're not an entrepreneurial mm. family mm. at all. Um, my parents were social workers yep. and um, I expected that, you know, I, you would work hard at school and then go to uni and work hard and then you would get a good job and that's kind of what I assumed at school. Um, my life was going to be like. So yeah, first 18 years in Tasmania and then I moved to Melbourne for uni in 1997 and I'd worked very hard in year 12 to get into law. And I went to my first law lecture and realized that I absolutely did not want to do law. <laughs> mm. And uh, <laughs> so my parents were thrilled. And I um, just sort of ended up floating around, you know, sort of in, a, in an arts degree for a couple of years. And then ended up, ended up doing some business subjects. And look, it was probably about that time that I started to think about, um,
0: about the idea for a door. And where did that come from?
2: Well, my part-time uni job, I, I had to you know, um, fund my own um, move to Melbourne. As I said, my parents were social workers so mm. that they couldn't um, pay for me. So I, I worked through uni to support myself. And my part-time job was working on the Clarence counter. Um, and they used to send me around to different stores doing promotions and you know, makeovers for people with mini facials, that kind of thing, and um, which I loved. It was mm. uh, as far as... Part-time uni jobs. It was it was the funnest, and um, but I really realised, kind of when I explained to people at parties and things what I did, everybody would sort of pull this face and go, "Oh, you know, I hate going in there. All these scary women. They're all wearing too much makeup, and they mm. pounce on you and spray perfume on you, and um, you know, try and try and sort of bully you into buying things." And to me, that was just a bit of a sad situation because. I'd, I'd always loved beauty products and for me that they were a thing that you did to make yourself feel good mm. and if going and shopping for beauty products is making is not making you feel good then something about that whole system is broken and it was uh, obviously you know in the very early days like I'd really only started using the internet every day um, in my first year of uni and um, so The internet was was quite new to me, um, but I could see, you know, the first thing I would look at when I logged on into the internet labs at uni was um, I'd go on and look at beauty sites. That was what I loved. And there was nothing in Australia. And I thought, oh, you know, it would really make sense for someone to do a beauty website because then people wouldn't have to go and have that unpleasant experience anymore. And you could have all the brands in the one place. And you wouldn't have to do that stupid thing where you have to, you know, go up from counter to counter and kind of asking permission to be mm-hmm. able to buy stuff, you know, sort of running the gauntlet in that way. And, and to me, that, that just made sense. And I sort of waited for somebody else to do it. And I was thinking, gee, wouldn't it be great when we have something like this in Australia? And I kind of waited and waited. And meanwhile, had been talking to, you know, boring all of my friends and my boyfriend stupid about talking about this idea. And it wasn't till you know, one day my boyfriend turned around to me and said, Look, are you gonna do this or what? <laughs> and that was honestly I'd never for one moment in my life contemplated starting a business before that moment. Um, and then I thought, Well, jeez, yeah, maybe maybe I am. Mm-hmm. Maybe I am gonna do it. Why not me? Mm-hmm.
1: So you started the the business actually from your garage. I like to call it. You Steve Jobs did. Sure. Um, <laughs> what was some of the other <laughs> things you had to bootstrap in the early days of business?
2: Oh, everything was was bootstrapped. I remember um, one of the things that you were supposed to always have was you know was a like piece of letterhead back then, and and you know apply for this with you know your company details on your letterhead. Yeah. <laughs> I just could never afford to actually <laughs> go and have that printed up, so I used to like. Print them out and kind of pretend. Um, I had to, oh, look, I had to teach myself to code um, because after um, I, I borrowed some money from my boyfriend's
0: dad. And, he sounds um, like a pretty good boyfriend. Is he still around?
2: <laughs> he is actually. Yes, yeah, yeah. he used to have a couple of kids now, so he was a keeper. Mm. Um, and yeah, so we we had to we had to borrow money to kind of get started, but uh, you know, I'd only I'd only borrowed as much as I needed to um, get the website built and buy a little bit of stock, and there just really wasn't anything left over. And then, of course, I realised that you know, if you have a website, you need to update it from time to time. You know, you need to be able to add new products on or change what's on the homepage, and I couldn't afford to spend one hundred and eighty dollars an hour on getting, you know, a web designer to update it for me and I thought, right, so I borrowed like a For dummies book out of the library and um and taught myself how to code just enough to to be able to make changes to it. And broke it a few times but um we weren't too busy back then so it didn't really matter. Mm. Uh but yeah, had to had to kind of get quite creative in terms of um having enough money to live on. So I think in the first year um, my boyfriend's dad that we borrowed money from, he, he had a motel. He was the only business person I knew. Mm. And, uh, he, he offered to me to, um, if I would like to, uh, perhaps bake some, some gifts for his clients, then he would, he would buy them from me. And so I remember baking about 40 fruitcakes. You know, to, just to try mm. and make a little bit of extra cash to live on. So mm. yes, it was all pretty, uh, pretty rough and ready in those mm. days.
0: So in those early days, you obviously felt that you had gaps in your knowledge, but you must have had your head screwed on well in terms of money managing. I mean, the idea that you got a part-time job at Clarence that then opened you up to this opportunity and then you went and you taught yourself coding, you know, by buying a dummy's guide, you sound like you were pretty astute in the way that you looked after your money you know you weren't throwing it out on fancy designs or you know all the things that can often bring you down for a startup in those early early years the early year or early years but and then you said your parents were social workers and obviously doing a lot of good work I have no doubt but where did you learn about money growing up where did this very sensible Kate Morris come from? Well I guess
2: you have to be sensible through necessity, right? Because you don't have much choice. You know, mm-hmm. you'd be sensible or you don't eat. Um, so, look, I mean, when I was growing up, money was not something that was really talked about very much. I think um, you know, my my parents were probably a bit squeamish about the whole um, idea of, of money and so it wasn't something that, was, that we really had big discussions about that um, I think they did teach us to be very resourceful because was like, okay, right, well, five bucks a week pocket money is all we're going to give you. Mm. And if you want more than that, you'll need to go and get a job. And mm. so, as soon as I turned 15 and was old enough, I went and got myself a job. And mm. I, you know, went and my parents gave me some tips on how to put together a resume. And I printed out my resume and took it to all of the shops in the main street of Launceston. And I got myself an after school job in a chemist. And I worked there for two hours every day after school. Making, well, I don't even know what it was like, six dollars an hour or something. But um, you know, cleaning the toilets and vacuuming the shop mm-hmm. and going and collecting the mail and um, and so I was making like fifty bucks a week or something. And I thought I was the queen of the world for that because it was a hell of a lot more than five dollars
0: a week pocket money. Mm. Um, Obviously, Kate, these were days when you were laying down the foundations of you to become very self-sufficient. You know, and, I think so.
2: Hmm. I think so. Yes, and and going and I guess just sort of really learning the value of money and and understanding that things are not going to fall in your lap and you're going to have to work for it.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, and you know, and it's something I certainly think a lot about now. How can I make sure that I that I teach that to my kids, even though they're they're growing up in in different circumstances? So it's it's actually something that I'm endeavouring to talk to my kids a lot more about. So we'll. We'll be sitting there at breakfast, and we'll be explaining, like you know, retail margins and overheads <laughs> over the breakfast <laughs> table, or or if we go for a drive, we're talking about the equity markets and trying to explain, you know, the stock mm. market and how that all works. Because I think that's you know, you've got to you've got to pass on to your kids, um, you know, a, a bit of a sense of how how everything works. Mm. And um, well, you yeah, men-
0: you mentioned to us before we started the recording, just when we were chatting, that you had a nine year old and a four year old. The stock uh-huh. market talk and, you know, those kind of financial positions and movements, your nine-year-old might be okay. I think the four-year-old would be faking it.
2: Mm. I think it's a bit above her head yeah. at the yeah. moment. But, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, the nine-year-old, I think she, she's quite she's, – she's a smart kid mm. and, um, you know, <laughs> the sure four-year-old,
1: that... I think we're we're just hoping for a bit of an osmosis effect or <laughs> yeah. something.
2: She'll just absorb it somehow. Yeah.
1: So I guess the door business today – is really the go-to for Australians for accessing beauty products. How have you managed yeah. to scale it to such a level? Oh,
2: gosh. Um, look, and it's, it's something that, you know, people have to understand. I mean, this has taken 20 years. It's not a thing that, you know, it's not an overnight success by any stretch of the imagination. And if I think about the first 10 years, I mean, that was it was really quite, a small business. I think ten years in, it was probably doing I don't know maybe three million in revenue. Um, so it was, you know, there's a long fog of of being small and making a lot of mistakes, and you know, trying to live off cash flow. Which again, I think you know, it's a good it's a good discipline to have to bootstrap, right? Because you can't um, you can't make a lot of expensive mistakes because you can't afford to. Mm, yeah. So I think I think the things that have sort of benefited us. Over that, you know, over that whole kind of 20-year period, the whole idea about being customer-centric and and keeping at its heart that core purpose of wanting to empower our customers and wanting Shopping for Beauty to be a thing that makes them feel good, that's always been our North Star, even though there's been a lot of technology changes. I mean, I think when I started the business 20 years ago, it was still on dialogue.
0: Oh, you know, wow. it
2: was... Um, you know, no smartphones, nothing. So certainly a lot has changed, but what hasn't changed, I think, is the purpose of what we're trying to achieve. And so if you remain customer-centric and you continue to, I guess, every dollar you have, unless that was going to add value for our customers in some way, we didn't spend it because it was It was just, you know, you, you have to – it just makes you really, really focused um, so we've always had an approach, for instance, about you know, testing and learning and, and we've, never, we've never kind of bet the farm on anything or taken a, taken a big risk that we couldn't come back from. Um, it's always been more of an approach of how can, we, how can we make incremental changes or if it's a big thing, how can we test just to see if that works before we continue to invest on scaling it up? And that's, that's been the approach. For 20 years and it's still still really the approach today, um, yeah. you know, throw a bunch of things at the wall and <laughs> some see, of them will stick and then you can change. scale
0: those ones up, yeah. yeah. Scaling and well, growth, um, it does suck in, you alluded to that, Kate, it does suck in capital. Um, yeah. Have you had the need to seek capital through other, other equity partners or, you know, putting your house on the line, you know, Cap in hand to banks. Uh, what, how, have, how have you grown yeah. that in terms of a, a capital strategy? So, I
2: mean, obviously trying to, you know, trying to be cash flow positive is obviously the best the best recipe. I mean, the best recipe for scaling a business is try and make a profit. Mm. Um, so, look, I mean, we, we bootstrapped for a very long time. So we paid back that original loan after a year or so. Um, from my boyfriend's dad, um, and then bought bought a house in two thousand and six. About six years in, and used the equity in that house as effectively a way of financing the business uh-huh. for uh-huh. you know for a long time afterwards. Um, I think the thing that we've discovered with Banks in Australia is that they are extremely conservative, and in terms of backing businesses, it doesn't matter how long you've been in operation or how profitable you might be. Like, they still really don't want to lend you money without property.
0: No, they um, love bricks so and mortar. Hmm.
2: They really do. Hmm. They really do. And so, in the end, we thought, well, we can, we can rage against it, or we can just, we can just roll with it. And um, yeah, so you use the, use the house, remortgage the house numerous times until it got to a point that. You know, there were a few things that we needed to be able to forward invest on that w- that weren't going to return money immediately. Mm. Um, you know, we needed to build a new website. We needed to scale up our warehouse operations. We needed to buy a whole lot of stock. We needed to make some big new hires. Um, and we were going to kind of struggle to get over that hump of scaling up to the next level. So it was in about 2014, we raised some equity um, from Woolworths. Mm-hmm. So we, we sold 25% of the company to okay. Woolworths to get some money in. Um, in the next two years, we tripled the size of the business. Mm,
0: wow.
2: um, and then we bought the shares back
0: oh, two years okay. later. So mm. in,
2: in 2016, we were able to raise some
0: debt.
2: Mm. Um, and then we, we went back to being independent until last year, where we sold 60% to Quadrant Private Equity.
0: Okay. Okay. And cool. what's what's that experience been like? So you you and your partner now 40% and Quadrant Correct. Um, is it like quadrant a venture yeah, capital? Yeah, yep, they own 60%. So you're working with another player? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually been a really good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not something we entered into lightly.
2: So mm. it was something where I did, I mean when you're talking about, you know, a business that you've been growing and nurturing for 19 years mm. you know it does become like your baby oh, and, definitely. Mm. Uh, you know I wasn't I wasn't willing to give up a piece of it to anybody and they was quite sure that you know they um, they were on the same page as us in, particularly in terms of culture and values um, and so did quite a lot of due diligence before um, before making that partnership and mm. spoke to a whole bunch of other founders that they had worked with um, just to, to kind of get a sense as to you know what they were like and I guess the references came back all pretty glowing and um yeah so we went ahead and look at, it's actually been really great um it's certainly you know going into going into a pandemic earlier in the year I think without having a partner to kind of go into that alongside you and without having a you know like healthy balance sheet I think that would have been a little bit scary but um as it is, it's all been really positive so
0: far. Well, that's good to hear. One one thing that um, I'd like you to explain to anyone listening, Kate, is you're a kid from Launceston. You talked a little bit about um, you're very resourceful, but you know you've got yourself a job. You know when you were young, fifteen, I think you said, and then you got yourself another job when you went to Melbourne. You know, so you've always been had that um, desire to look after yourself. But I think you hinted that you weren't very, you know, you didn't have a high tolerance of risk, but you're in business and business is risky. Even taking on partners like originally Woolworths, you minimised that when you bought it back, but then to Quadrant. How did you adapt to the riskiness that's involved in business? You know, your house is on the line, you know, things like that. Did Did you find coming to terms with risk something easy or you've just adjusted to it? Take us through that.
2: I think you get used to it. To be honest, um, and I do see, like I do a lot of mentoring with um, with other entrepreneurs, both very early stage entrepreneurs through um, the Startmate Accelerator, and also some others that are kind of at that scaling up stage. And you know, and and the risk conversation is usually one that always comes up. And look, my belief is that if you want to be successful in business, you have to be kind of willing to put everything on the line at mm. a certain point, and um you know whether that means quitting your job so you can go all in and focus on the business or or putting your house on the line like if you're not prepared to do that mm. i think it's probably you know maybe business isn't for you um it is not it is not something for the faint hearted and i think it's it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to overemphasize you know to overemphasize that that it's unless you are willing to give it everything you have and to continue to do that year after year, um, you're going to find it. You're going to find it tough going.
1: Yeah. So, what would you say have been some of your kind of greatest financial learnings throughout the process of building a door?
2: Ooh, um, so many, so many. I mean, when I think about when I started, when I was 21, I really didn't know anything. Um, look, I think the biggest one is that look, honestly, revenue solves the most problems. Um, so, you know, at times when things are difficult, I mean, yes, you know, keep costs to a minimum, but nothing solves problems like, problems like, um, you know, boosting your sales. So I think that that's obviously a big one. I mean, you know, cash flow, everyone always goes on about but I mean, yeah, it, it's true. Cash is. Absolutely, king. king, and
0: and oh, you, you can never, ever,
2: plan. ever lose sight of it for a second.
0: No, it's your life um, You could even be profitable at the end of the year, but if you haven't got the cash to get through to the end of the year, you haven't got the dead. cash. Yes, yeah. yeah. mm. yes. Well, that was that was the challenge we always had because as
2: the business grew, it needed more and more inventory, and of mm. course. You know, it ended up getting to be sort of quite a substantial amount of, of money. And, of course, you can't pay people's wages with all of the lipsticks that are sitting on the shelves. No, so no, well. no, no, yeah, You could try, but I
0: don't think yeah. you get anywhere. You
2: could try. Yeah. I Some would take that it. Yes, yeah, so true. Well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other thing is is not over-investing in fixed costs. Um, so trying not to sort of keep your fixed cost base as lean as you can And we still, we still do things that way a lot of the time. I mean, for most big new hires, we, you know, if it's a new role that we haven't had in the business before, often our approach will be to contract or to to outsource that function first to kind of make sure that we can, you know, get that value and the ROI from it before we go ahead and hire it in that role permanently and kind of add that to our fixed cost base. Um, So that's something that we'll, Will tend to do,
1: so it goes back to that kind areas of, of our business before implementing testing.
2: Yeah, testing, testing, testing. yes. <laughs> before you add any big chunk of of cost, you make sure that it's going to work and it's going to deliver you the value that you think it's going to, or whether you actually perhaps need to you know peel it and tweak it a little bit before before you do that.
0: And who have you sought for advice from over the years? Because you self confessed and said you didn't know all that much about business. You know, when your boyfriend. Yeah. At the time, said, "Well, why don't you get, you know, jump in and do it?" Um, Who have you turned to for advice? How have you learnt? Has it been on the job learning, or has it been more than that?
2: Um, Certainly, lots of on the job learning and mistake making. And I guess I, I have a growth mindset in the sense that I don't think any, you know, any mistake, provided that it doesn't send you broke, is, (laughs) is, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's an opportunity for learning. There are lessons there, and so. Um, you know, I don't really regret any of the mistakes that I made because each of them taught me something. Mm. Um, I think, oh, let me see who else. Um, so in the, in the early days, I mean, my boyfriend's dad, the, uh, the motel owner, you know, taught me a lot of the just kind of the basics of accounting, you know, mm. make sure that your revenue is more than your expenses, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, you know, I did do, I did do obviously some accounting, um, subjects at uni, which was, which was, very useful. I think the rest of my business degree probably teaches you more, you know, sort of from a theoretical or philosophical standpoint than how to actually sort of do it on a day to day basis. So mostly I learned by doing, but I did also put a lot of effort, um, and particularly in later years into building my networks and making sure that I had kind of a brain trust of people that I could ask for help on particular things. And, and I feel very fortunate that um I've you know had such a such a broad group of people that you know in exchange for me buying them a coffee um that they'll give me you know 20 minutes of their time to mm. help out with a question that I might have and um I think networking was something that made me feel very squeamish at the start and something yeah. I was sort of uncomfortable about doing but um you know but that's that's certainly the way to do it, and and mm. I think that would be my my best advice for anybody is to invest that time in in building up your networks and and giving back to those networks too. you have a mm. bit of a, a calmer kind of approach to that, I think you I think you get what you give, and um, you need yeah, to pay it forward to give back as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, Kate, in business, I mean, I might give your a talk a bit, and you can think about this, but who are your role models who did you look to either the either the business itself like you saw a business like say boost juice and you liked that model or you saw individual people doing it well and you liked what they presented in terms of what they offered a customer or a client and you liked the culture around their business can can you think of businesses that you looked at and you thought and someone might be listening and saying well I like a door, you know, and that you become the role model. But who were you looking to, to build a door on on a certain type of platform? Oh,
2: gosh. Um, Well, look, I guess I'm fortunate in that uh, the beauty industry has a very proud history of women entrepreneurs. So you can go all the way back to Estée Lauder and Helena Mm. Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden, you know, these amazing, sassy Mm. women at a time when, Women didn't really start businesses just getting out there and doing it, which is, I think, still incredible if you look back at what those women achieved. Um, I mean, in, in the early days when I was starting out, like if you think about, you know, kind of the 90s in Australia, it was Natalie Bloom and Poppy King, Mm -hmm. um, you know, young women with the guts to, to get out there and, um, and go for it. I always looked up to Natalie Mathenay, the founder of MetaPorte. Um, because again, she was you know, she was a a groundbreaker, um, and a rule changer as far as um bringing the world of high fashion into the internet age. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, I looked at I certainly looked at, you know, businesses like Sephora, um, you know, before they before they entered Australia that we would look at, you know, Sephora overseas and, and their approach and mm. um have a lot of respect. For that, and and now I guess we're you know we're kind of making our own way. I feel like um, in a lot of ways, Adora is trying to do something that that hasn't been done um, in terms of really empowering women and making beauty a thing that where people feel included and um, and part of it, rather than you know this sort of very airbrushed image of perfection that's unattainable mm. yep. so I guess we're, we're running our own race right now mm, definitely mm.
1: just as much as women have beauty rituals we also like to talk about money rituals so did you have any kind of money rituals that act as a self-care practice
2: oh I tried to think about this one <laughs> um oh. it's
1: a tough one isn't yeah, it
2: it's- it's a tough one. Yeah. I don't know that I had anything, I don't know that I had anything sort of particular for this one that was a money ritual for me. I think giving back is something that is really important and if you manage to, you know, achieve any sense of financial security or even before you do that that's that's a really important part of it, you know. I mean, we're so lucky in Australia. We have so much. Yeah. And I think there's something to um that whole that whole kind of idea of karma is that, um, you know, we should,
1: we should pay it forward to those who are less fortunate than us. Absolutely. Um, do you have any examples of something that might have been a good personal investment? It could be an investment of time or in education or money?
2: Um, well, look, you know, it's hard to go past all the years that I sat in the garage freezing my butt off working on a door. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that certainly <laughs> that certainly it's it didn't okay. seem like mm-hmm. a good investment at the time. I yeah. think all my friends were finishing their uni degrees and going out and getting jobs in the city and wearing suits. And here I was in my garage with my cat. So <laughs> it seemed like a great investment at the time, but I, I feel vindicated somewhat now. Um, I think, I think in terms of the investment of time, I don't think you ever regret time that you put into building relationships. Mm. Um, and so whether that's through doing the networking, like I I talked about before, you know, building building that network of people that you can help and that can help you, but also the time that you put into family, um, because your family are the ones, you know, business success is all very well and good and, and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't, but your family are the ones that will be there for you no matter what. Yeah. Um, you know, if things go well, they're there. If things don't go well, they're still there. And and um, you know, that's something that I that I very much believe in. So I do try and you know finish work at kind of a normal time every day, so that I can go and have, have dinner with my kids and make sure that we spend some time together, even if it's just sitting on the couch watching Ninja Warrior. Um, <laughs> you know, I the don't I times. don't think you ever regret that. No. Yeah. Of yeah. course.
1: Um, what advice would you have to your twenty one year old self?
2: You know, I I get asked this one a bit and I don't know that I would really tell her anything because
1: (laughs) – She needs to learn all the mistakes herself.
2: She needs to learn. Yeah. She needs to learn. Yeah. Um, I think the one thing that I would try and give her is just to, you know, not be squeamish about money. It's not an embarrassing thing to talk about. It's not an embarrassing thing to to understand and to know more about. You know, there's no shame in profit. Yeah, and um, and I I think yes, from my from my family background, that just wasn't something we ever really talked about. But I I do think that that well, yeah, it's something that I'm wanting to hand on to my kids now. So I guess I guess that's the one thing I would Perfect. I would put in there.
0: I'd like to jump in and say that um, I remember reading um, Jess Blanche, who is the editor in chief of Rush Magazine, and mm-hmm. it's something that we're working very closely with Rush um, in building Tilly Money. And in an interview, someone asked Jess a very similar question. You know, what would you tell your twenty one year old self? And Jess said, "I don't think she'd listen." So I think you've said something very similar there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but uh, but yeah, probably true. Yeah, tough one. I've been twenty one. I did, I thought I knew it all, but um, I had to learn that lesson. But, uh, but <laughs> what does the future hold for adore and also for you, Kate?
2: Oh, look! I feel like we're still a startup, honestly. So it's every day is a new adventure. Mm. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've been on a roller coaster three times by lunchtime most days. So, yeah. um, but I love that. Like that's to me that. That's so fun, um, and even though sometimes, you know, you're sitting a roller coaster too long, you feel a little bit nauseous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's still good. Um, look, I, I feel like we're in some ways really just hitting our straps, so it's been so amazing, you know, that if I sort of look at everything that we've done in the last just 12 months, um, you know, we've launched our own podcast, Beauty IQ Uncensored, launched a YouTube channel which we actually the launch uh, went ahead during the first round of uh, ISO in March and of course that um, made us achieve a whole new level of resourcefulness to try and produce content when we couldn't go into the studio yeah.
0: um,
2: you know we we launched into New Zealand only a year ago um, you know we've still we've got we've got so much more to do, and so much more to be able to to give our customers. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just really looking forward to, I guess, continuing to to delight and excite them.
1: Oh, and I'm sure you will. We're so looking forward to to watching a door from afar and see how it grows. Where can people <laughs> find out more about you and a door? Um, look, come um, and I mean,
2: obviously go to the website, um, you know, follow us on Instagram. Adore beauty is on Instagram and Twitter. Maybe come and follow us on LinkedIn as well, where we post some a bit more about, um, you know, work life at Adore and, um, some more of our business articles. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Morris underscore Kate, um, or on Instagram. I'm Kate Adore Beauty.
1: Thank you so much, Kate, for your time today. It's been so good talking to you. All the very best, Oh, Kate. thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Your hosts this week were Maureen Jordan and Claire Osman. Thanks to Ixon for our intro music. See you next time.